Hello, friends. This is Robert Roach on the Type 1 Planet podcast, and our show and our greater organization is dedicated to designing a theoretical model for a civilization that could sustainably thrive for thousands of years into the future, and one that would not experience that historical trend that we've seen of catastrophic collapse of great ancient civilizations. Now, the more we learn from these massive historical events, the more we may be able to adapt our approach for a sustainable long-term future. And it's for that reason that I'm thrilled to have had Joseph Tainter on our show. He's an acclaimed anthropologist and historian whose groundbreaking research has transformed our understanding of societal complexity and collapse. Uh, Joseph is a professor for the Department of Environment and Society at Utah State University, and he's probably best known for his 1988 book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, which examines the dynamics and processes that lead civilizations to decay and unravel. And this work remains a key text for anyone seeking to comprehend how societies evolve, adapt, and sometimes catastrophically fail. Now, in his research, Joseph tackles big questions about civilizational stability, the ability to problem solve, the complex interplay of factors that allow civilizations to thrive or decline. And his core argument is that as civilizations evolve to solve problems, they become more complex. And this added complexity initially yields benefits and new capabilities. But over time, it requires ever more resources to sustain itself, leading to diminishing returns. And eventually, the cost of maintaining complexity overwhelms the benefits. And that sets the stage for collapse. Um, Joseph's ability to analyze civilizations using his anthropological lens provides a unique vantage point for us. And um, it's been amazing speaking with him. I think you're going to love it. Now, as a side note, we were unable to use our usual video chatting platform due to tech constraints so the audiovisual quality is slightly less than what you'll be used to uh, still i think you're gonna love it it's a fantastic conversation so enjoy stay curious and please send us your feedback hello and welcome to the type one planet podcast this is robert roach and today i'm joined by joseph tainter he's a renowned anthropologist a historian he's made significant contributions to the understanding of societal complexities and the mechanisms that cause a civilization to potentially collapse. And he's the author of The Collapse of Complex Societies, which is a book I just had the pleasure of listening to on Audible. Um, I don't actually own the paperback version yet, but uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So the purpose of this podcast and the greater company behind it is to develop a theoretical model of a civilization, a global civilization that could thrive into the deep future, meaning we're exploring as a team what it would need to be true in order for our current civilization to survive and thrive into the deep future, long periods of time, five to 10,000 years. And so you could tell why we may want to get your perspective on, on, on the, this project. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, just for the, uh, the purpose of this discussion, can you explain what makes for a complex society? And how would we categorize our, our current society in that, in that framework? Well, we're, mo we're the most complex societies that have ever existed. Com complexity has two elements, um, stru the structure of the society and its organization. So the two elements are what makes up the society uh, in terms of social roles, rules, laws, um, organizations, uh, governmental levels, all of, all of the individual entities that you can point to that are, that are the aspects of a society. Uh, these, these are what I call structure, the structure of the society. 
Um, combined with structure is organization, which is the, uh, the way that the parts work together to make a functioning whole, to make a functioning system. Uh, this consists of, of cultural norms, uh, uh, people's beliefs. Uh, it can consist of formal rules and laws, uh, informal ways in which people interact with each other, informal ways in which we, let's say, interact with, with institutions, with businesses, with government parts. Uh, so, so structure and organization are the, the twin aspects of complexity. You have to have both to have a complex system. You have to have a highly differentiated structure. In other words, a lot of parts. And the parts have to be made coherent by organization. Organization makes the parts behave together in certain ways. So the complexity consists of structure and organization. Now, it, it's easy to confuse complexity with complicated, which, which people generally understand. People understand complications in their lives. They're not necessarily the same thing. Things that are complicated are not necessarily well organized. Uh, a, a complex system is has structure and organization. Is there a trade-off between structure and organization? You know, you might. Is it possible for a very, you know, let's say a very unstructured society, from your definition, a society that doesn't have uh, a super complex political system, but they're they can be very well organized. They can be, you know, is a, is a hunter gatherer society a well organized society? Um, oh, yes. I mean, organization doesn't have to be hierarchical. And for most of human history, it hasn't been. Um, highly hierarchical societies are a function of, oh, it's primarily the last 12,000 years or so since uh, we began uh, to become dependent on agriculture. Uh, so, yes, uh, organization can take many forms. Uh, in a hunter gatherer society, it, it simply consists of how people in small bands interact with each other, their beliefs, their cultural norms, their conventional ways of, of working together and treating each other. Uh, in, in, in highly complex societies like ourselves, you start with that base of, of cultural norms and beliefs and interactions, and then you layer on top of it uh, more formal structures and rules and laws, um, such as we're all familiar with. One, uh, there's two key indicators you mentioned in your book that in that show that a com society may be complex, and that is inequality and heterogeneity. Could you explain why those are important for as important markers to to say that okay, this society is probably very complex? These are terms that a colleague of mine uh, came up with a number of years ago, but but they're consistent with with what I've just been describing to you. Uh, inequality and heterogeneity. So heterogeneity is simply structure. It, it is a, a system divided into a number of parts or components. Um, it is heterogeneous. Uh, it, you know, a, a complex society can, cannot um, can, can must be heterogeneous. That's the only way it can be. Otherwise, it's not a complex society. Um, so it, and 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 that organization, of course, as I say, is the way that the parts are bound together to. To function as a whole. Mm. So the, but I really appreciated the way that you structured your book was that you took the time not to define what a complex society is, and then you took a fair amount of time to to define collapse. Um, 
and you have theories of collapse and also you outline many different kinds of collapses that have happened in human history and you pull out primary contributing factors that lead to those collapses. and i'm excited to get into those but there's one there's one uh key quote that stood out to me um it is a little out of context obviously uh but you said collapse is not intrinsically a catastrophe and so what does this statement mean do we is it possible to have first of all a civilizational collapse a, a complex well-structured civilization to collapse without massive loss of life or without uh you know setting us back so far that it takes a long time to get back to where we were massive loss of life is, is a different issue and and if you will bring it up again later in the conversation i can i can discuss it a little mm-hmm. bit more um not intrinsically a catastrophe let me give an example uh in the latter days of the roman empire there are actually examples of people in uh in the colonies the roman provinces in western europe actually inviting um germanic invaders into uh into the roman lands to relieve them of the burden of roman taxes and with the end of the roman empire roman taxes went away and it is likely that people um, enjoyed better lives because of that. Uh, there would have been less security and, and less of, of, of other things, less trade, less interaction. But at the same time, people, you have to remember that 90% of people were farmers in those days. People, people were able to keep more of their crops, which meant they could feed their children better. And, 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 and in that sense, uh, collapse is not necessarily a catastrophe. Now, collapse is an economic function, as, as I have worked out in that book. Uh, to be a complex system always has a metabolic cost. Uh, we think of the cost today in terms of things, things like money. Um, but but if, if we go back to, let us say, pre-industrial days, uh, the, the cost of being a complex society was basically energy, uh, primarily you know, in recent centuries in, in the form of agriculture. So the... the, the you know, perhaps you should go back and, and rephrase the question. I'm getting a little, a, a little off. No, it, it. You know, it's the reason I brought it up is because, you know, the, we there's all these examples in your book, but obviously we're. I'm thinking of this in the framework of the civilization that we live in today, and the civilization that my child will live in. You know, in his in his lifetime, and from that perspective, selfishly, I don't want. For our civilization to collapse but yes i am a part of that civilization there might be uh uncontacted tribes for example that you know maybe the class of our civilization makes their quality of life better um and so i was trying to better understand what you meant by that phrase and there was another quotation that uh i found striking and i really loved it you wrote every time history repeats itself the price goes up and maybe that is an, a better uh kind of quotation to 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 get your clarification on what do you mean by this phrase that the price goes up and what do you estimate the price of a modern day collapse would be? Well, that, that was mostly a humorous statement. So let, let me talk sure. more about, um, specifically about complexity. Complexity always has a cost. Complexity is not free. Um, in the biological world, more complex organisms have a higher metabolic requirement than do Simple, simple organisms, uh, and, and the same is true in human societies. More complex societies have a higher energy requirement than simpler societies do. 
and it's and it's a higher cost per capita per person. Now we're largely all aware of this today because to to us complexity appears to be free. We pay for complexity through fossil fuels, so we're largely all aware of it, except when we go to, go to a gas station to fill up our car. Uh, but other than that, uh, we're not aware that complexity has a cost. People in the past understood it, although they couldn't have expressed it quite the way we do today. Um, but as, as societies, particularly from the beginning of agriculture about 12,000 years ago, as they grew in size and complexity and interaction with other societies, the, the cost of being such societies increased um, until you get to the point where you have formal state organizations that impose taxes on people. And as the size of state organizations would grow, particularly uh, with the cost of, of supporting armies, uh, the, the level of taxation would go up. And, and this is very clear in the later Roman Empire that uh, that the, simply the cost of being the Roman Empire went up, and it resulted in the imposition of higher higher taxes uh, on the agricultural population. But but I want to go back to the point um, that that I was trying to make before, and that's that complexity is not intrinsically good or bad. Complexity increases, as I've argued throughout the book, complexity increases to solve problems, and it works. Complexity can be used to solve problems. Um, it's not intrinsically good or bad. It's either useful and affordable, or it isn't. Yeah, this is a key part of your book, is that the investment in sociopolitical complexity, we're investing in sociopolitical complexity as a problem solver, as something that, you know, for example, we can find cures for diseases, we can do a rapid response to a pandemic, we can uh, decrease child, you know, decrease poverty or, or infant mortality on a global scale. Um, and the one of the big elements of your book is that as we invest more and more into sociopolitical complexity, it starts to have diminishing returns. And I wanted to, and it's something that we all kind of see around us in our culture that we keep getting more and more complex, but we're not, let's just say from a personal satisfaction perspective, people seem to be less and less happy as they're stacking more and more technology on top of technology in their lives. Um, you know, what, where does this, where do these diminishing returns come from? Um, and, you know, why is it that that this is such a prevalent trend through human history? Humans first pluck the low-lying fruit. This is invariant. Now, in the case of um, complexity of societies, we first evolved simple, low-cost societies, hunter-gatherer bands, and the, in these societies, anthropologists studying, for example, uh, the Bushmen of, of Southern Africa in the 1960s found that these that these people, these, these hunter-gatherer bands, actively work not to become hierarchical, to keep their societies as simple as they can. Um, so we, fir we first evolved the simplest, least-cost institutions, and, and, and then we evolved from those as, as we need to solve problems and develop complex solutions to problems, increasingly complex solutions to problems, uh, complexity increases and the cost of complexity goes up. So it, it's purely a function of 
first adopting the simplest solutions that we're aware of and that seem to work, that seem to do the job. Uh, but then we're always building more complex and more costly solutions on top of those. So it's it's a matter of, as I say, always plucking the low-lying fruit. Mm. And we and as you continue to invest, uh, you let's say we have a limited um, energy resource, like you were referring to fossil fuels. As you continue to invest, you need to start pulling. Is it that you need to start pulling resources away from the? You know, one one point you pointed out is that when a stressor occurs, you need to redirect resources to deal with that stressor. Uh, COVID nineteen pandemic is a maybe a good example. Um, and then that can have negative future implications if you you redirect those those resources in such a way where now we're investing less in our uh, problem solving capabilities. Um, how is it that you know, like production capacity or our ability to react to a stressor? Um, how is it that we? It's difficult to d- describe this question. You know, we're starting to get into into the the thick of it here. Um, let's just say let's take the COVID nineteen pandemic as an example. What was your assessment of how we reacted to the pandemic? We had a major global stressor, large pr- new productions of, let's say, PPE and and uh, uh, medicines and that kind of stuff. How What was your reaction to that? And do you see that we will have negative future implications because of that reaction? I, I like historical comparisons. So let's go back to the Black Death of the 14th century. In response to the Black Death, medical science as it existed in those days had to become more complex. Uh, the base of knowledge had to grow, and so um, practitioners had to learn new things um, and 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 learn ways to cope with what was a, a new melody. Now, if, if you look at um, COVID today, we've gone through the same thing. Medical science has become more complex. Uh, the organization of our societies has become more complex. Uh, in some societies, uh, let, let's say in, in, in like Italy, um, very strict controls were imposed on people. These are an aspect of being a complex society, and, and they're costly. Uh, in some ways, uh, there was an opportunity cost in that with people locked into their apartments, there, there are certain uh, businesses that suffered and certain economic functions that simply couldn't be conducted as as they usually are. So, um, I mean, COVID is a very clear example of how stress causes increase in complexity, causes complexity to grow. Now, one of the things I have noticed about in, in the response to, to COVID, and this is something that, well, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't really speak on this authoritatively. But COVID clearly affected people in ways that have never really been made explicit. But if you know what to look for, you can see how stressed people were by having their assumptions about the world suddenly yanked out from under them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, this is shocking for me. Most people don't consider the possibility that the way we live could not just automatically go on forever and maybe get better. Uh, and, and in fact, COVID showed us that the way we live is not guaranteed, uh, that things can happen to cause us um, to, to, to have to curtail aspects of, of how we live. And I think this, is, this contributed to some of the 
the political reactions to COVID that um, pe- pe- people simply could not accept the fact that um, th- that there were there was a need for curtailments in their way of life. And, and really, particularly in the United States, the, the activities we had to curtail were really very minor. But people don't know history, so they don't understand that. If you go back to, let's say, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, if there was an outbreak of plague in a city, the city's gates would be closed and locked. No one would be allowed in. No one would be allowed out. That is how those societies had to cope with, um, with, with, with disease outbreaks, with, with epidemics. Today, um, we have COVID, and and we didn't have, I mean, it, it, it really isn't possible. You can't lock the city gates anymore. But air travel was restricted. Travel between countries was restricted. In some nations, such as Italy, people were told, stay home. You, you should not leave your apartment except maybe to buy food, and then you go straight back. Uh, here, the restrictions we faced were, I think, fairly minor. But the stress on people's psyches, it's clear at least to me, and and let me tell you why I say that. Um, I, I, for many years now, since the Collapse Book come, came out, I've, I've done a few of these interviews per year. What I noticed in the aftermath of COVID is that I'm getting more requests to do these interviews about stress in societies. No, that's that's anecdotal. It's just my personal experience. I can't really quantify it, and 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 it's not like uh, I, I, I'm not a famous person. I don't do a lot of interviews per year, but I do. I, I've always done a handful, and now that handful has grown a little larger. Uh, it's it's simply an an example of how people's people responded to having their lives disrupted by a violation of the unconscious assumption that the way we live just automatically goes on and on. And we're particularly sensitive to reductions in standard of living, I feel. You know, our society, our civilization is built on, you know, capitalism itself is built on increasing standards of living. And, you know, uh, I think you, you note this as well in your writing is that when you invest in complexity, when you invest in research and development, it does require less investment in standard of living inherently. And you need to have some sort of collective agreement to reduce those standards of living, or you need a dictatorship, you know, a collective agreement or dictatorship, right? And and um and from my perspective, it seems somewhat impossible, you know, just given basic game theory to to have collective agreement work um unilaterally. And and I think we did experience that during COVID. Yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. And reductions in standard of living cause societal stress and, and political conflict. Um, I I am a member of the baby boom generation, and uh, people my age, I often heard them say that we were the first generation in American history to leave less, live less well than our parents. Uh, I don't know whether that's economically true. Um, certainly, in some ways, we 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 would come to live better than our parents did. Um, but but it's how people feel. It's how people perceive um, stress in their lives and the violation of the assumptions of their lives. So can we, bringing us back to diminishing returns on investment, uh, the more diminishing the returns, the closer the society is potentially to decay or to collapse. Um, 
How does a society, let's say historically, maybe let's take an historical example, how does a society enter a new cycle of increasing return on investment in complexity? Do you have any examples uh, from our history? Well, collapse is one way to do that, um, but it's not <laughs> one that we want to experience. No, we're, we're trying to avoid it, Joe. We're trying to... <laughs> um, no, yeah. There are possibilities, uh, none of them is simple or automatic. Um, when, when I give talks and people ask me a question like that, I like to say the first step is awareness. The first step is being aware of how complexity grows, because usually we aren't. Complexity generally grows by small steps, each of which seems reasonable and affordable at the time. It's the cumulative costs that do the damage. So talking as an academic here, and I know this is unrealistic, it would be good if people had a better knowledge of, of our, the long-term history of societies like ours and, and how they grow and evolve and encounter problems over time. Now, as far as a revolution goes, we, we have experienced them. Uh, the biggest one was, of course, uh, the Industrial Revolution, and in particular, the development of fossil fuels. Um, fossil fuels allowed us to break uh, the long-term constraints, under, or many of the long-term constraints under which uh, humanity had, had, had labored since, uh, since our species emerged. Um, that with, with, with fossil fuels, industrialization was made possible. Uh, our system of, of scientific research and, and development, uh, economic development, uh, technological development, those things were all made possible because of fossil fuels. Now, it's part of our, well, what an anthropologist would call an ancestor myth, that we think of the way we live today as something we, that we achieved through hard work and innovation. And, and I don't want to downplay those things. Certainly, you can admire the hard work and innovation that, that uh, we have accomplished in recent centuries. But none of that would have made any difference without fossil fuels. People in the past were highly, you know, they're highly innovative and, and very intelligent, but without um, a, a nearly inexhaustible energy source, um, they simply couldn't achieve a, a real breakthrough in their way of life. So the breakthrough came with fossil fuels. Uh, and, and we have to ask now, are, are we approaching the end of that cycle? Um, are, are we approaching the end of that, of that revolution? Mm. So this is the energy subsidy that you refer to. Um, what would a technology like fusion power, you know, let's say incredibly cheap, incredibly available amounts of power from fusion, what would that potentially do to our civilization? Yeah, that was what I get. You know, I'm not a physicist, but that there's what I gather was an important breakthrough in um, in, in in fusion research. Uh, when you look at the statistics of it, it looks like a really tiny amount of positive energy. But the assumption or the hope is that maybe that could be scaled up to um, ultimately to something um, that could you know, power complex societies. I, I don't know. Uh, what I will say is that there's always a constraint or more constraints. If, uh, if energy stops being our primary constraint, there will be other constraints. Something else will emerge. Uh, I mean, right now with um, our transition to uh, battery-powered vehicles, electric vehicles, uh, the constraint seems to be some of the rare, some, some of the minerals that go into lithium-ion batteries. 
Mm-hmm. And part of that constraints you to be political because a lot of these, uh, the, the supply is controlled by China and, and people should be worried about that. And, you know, the government should be worried about that, um, that it, we, our society becomes dependent, does indeed become dependent on electric vehicles. And that comes to be what most people drive. Uh, we will, we need a continuing supply of, of those minerals for lithium ion batteries. Mm-hmm. Well, that, can you, um, it, it's uncertain, but, but even if fusion does provide us, should provide us with, uh, you know, un- unimaginable abundant source of amounts of energy, something else will cons- be the constraint. There are always limits. Interesting. Yeah. Speaking of inequality, it takes a lot of inequality to, to get those miners down into those mines to pull out the materials we use for batteries. So, um, that's a, also an interesting conundrum we face as a civilization is how much suffering goes into creating those devices um now you uh you in your book you outlined 11 i think primary contributing factors that lead to collapse and uh, we do not need to go through all of them i wanted to see ask you of the primary contributing factors that lead to collapse what are most relevant you know for my project let's say you're, you're talking to me you're saying oh you want to make a theoretical model i would look at at these uh, these factors as the most relevant to our current day civilization. And are there any factors that you list there that are totally unique to our civilization, like existential risks from artificial intelligence or nuclear war or, or something like that? Well, artificial intelligence is, is certainly a, a, another increase in complexity, and we, and we don't know how it's going to turn out, but I and the discussion today of trying to constrain it or delay it is just not going to work. You, you can't stop it. Um, and, and we're going to have to cope with it. Now, it, it's important. You look at artificial intelligence and, and there's a tendency to think, oh, this will make our lives easier and better. Um, but, but it, it's, and, and so maybe, uh, maybe your lives don't become more complex. No. The important thing to understand about complexity is that complexity simplifies. As you elaborate structure and organization, you simplify and channel behavior. That's how complexity works to respond to problems. Um, and and so, question your your question about you know, what, uh, what what aspects of complexity should we be most concerned about? That varies with different historical periods and different kinds of societies. And even on a shorter term basis, with the challenges <laughs> that we face um, from day to day, uh, challenges in the international arena, challenges uh, in the domestic arena, these things these things all vary between time and place. Okay, interesting. If you were to rewrite this book today, thirty three years later, what would you change or adjust in your focus? Would you change any your approach in any way? No, um, I could actually give you um, some ideas because I've been writing down some ideas for how people could cope with complexity. Oh, yeah, please. First person to hear them, you and your audience. Oh, cheer! Yes, all right, awesome. I won't tell them all to you, but I'll, I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you some of them. Uh, as I've said, the, the first, the first step, the most fundamental step, is always. Be aware. Be aware of how and why complexity grows and what its consequences can be. Uh, and, and this, in part, means learning history. 
Um, I, I, I like to think that if I was, say, 40 years younger and know what I know now, uh, I, I might spend more time talking to, say, K-12 educators to, to, to put more emphasis on getting children to understand our long-term history as, as a species, because that's, I mean, that's a fundamental step. Um, one, one thing that's been, that's been proposed, not original with me, but a couple of people have proposed it is take small steps. Uh, don't, don't try to adopt enormous, large solutions to problems. Change gradually, take small steps. And, uh, you know, perfect example is biological evolution, which proceeds by small steps and, uh, has generally been successful in, in, in the history of life on earth. But what, one, one, one thing um, that comes up from time to time, it, of course, is cost-benefit analysis. Uh, I like the term full-cost accounting. I don't need to go into this because it, it's widely recognized. Um, the problem with cost-benefit analysis for complexity is that it, it's hard to see, to foresee, what the long-term consequences of complexity are going to be. Um, and, and so this, I mean, this is always a constraint, um, monitor energy, um, and don't necessarily rely on innovation because the research that I've been doing lately in complexity focuses on the productivity of innovation, uh, the productivity of, of our system of innovation. And, and what my colleagues and I have shown is that the productivity, uh, uh of our system of innovation is actually declining. And we're largely unaware of this today because if you go into an electronic store or go online, you can always buy new widgets to buy. Uh, but, but with some colleagues, we did a study of, of long-term trends in, uh, in the patents database. And, you know, we worked with a database of over 3 million patents. And what we've shown is that beginning in about say 1974 or so, the productivity of our, the system of innovation has declined by over 20%, and that's in the course of the generation. The reason goes back to plucking the low-lying fruit. Uh, back in the 19th century, research was the province of lone wolf naturalists, you know, like Charles Darwin, uh, Gregor Mendel, and so forth. Research, but it, it, and they addressed um, very fundamental principles that became the basis of much of subsequent science. But those basic principles have largely been discovered. And so we have to move, science has to move to narrower and narrower fields of, of inquiry, uh, which gradually become more and more interdisciplinary. And, and, and so innovation today, research today, is largely done by interdisciplinary teams rather than um, by individual lone wolf naturalists. Mm -hmm. uh, going back on my own history, uh, you know, going back to, say, the 1970s, uh, you know, see, my PhD was 1975. I remember in those days, one could pick up a copy of, let's say, the journal Science and look at an average article, and there'd be a single author per paper. If you go to those journals today, there are multiple authors per paper. This is now the norm. This is now commonplace. Uh, I, I see it when we advertise a faculty position here at Utah State University. I look at the applications that come in and, and the publishing records of 
of, of applicants and and they, they're all multi-authored papers whereas uh, you know in, in my day when when one applied for a university position one presented one's own publications as as the as the accomplishments um, and and so science grows complex it grows complex and it grows costly and so this is one of the reasons why I say don't necessarily rely on innovation to bail us out in the future. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it seems like it can't be a good mechanism to rely on if those complex structures especially are uh, are falling apart. <laughs> you know, my uh, my co-founder and, and uh, she's my wife as well, uh, she's a geneticist and she traveled to London to do experiments. She traveled to other parts of the country and then she has a whole bunch of co-authors on her on her thesis and uh, it's a it's an incredibly complex process um i i wanted to bring you back to learning about history uh i had got a taste for it after reading your book i i um read another book uh called the lessons of history uh following that the author incredibly famous person who is totally slipping my mind right now um my question for you is if you were to talk to a young person let's say in high school or about to exit high school what books would you say start here read these three books and then see where you want to go from there um would you have any recommendations along those lines well that that's quite hard i I think i need to think about that a bit um before i could answer i'm glancing over at a bookshelf now on I'm looking at two books, which aren't necessarily the most important ones. Um, there's a book called The Great Wave by a historian named Fisher, which concerns Christ's revolutions in the past. And its value is just that it illustrates the value of learning history and understanding history. Mm. Um, there's another book I'm looking at called Heat, Power, and Light, which concerns uh, the evolution of energy. Um, it, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say that there's a single book that one should read, but I would just say read history, particularly read long-term history, long-term historical changes, and just get a sense of history, a sense of what we can know from history. Uh, that's that's offhand. That's the best advice I could give. Okay. Uh, the Great Wave, Heat, Power, and Light. And, uh, I'm going to include those in the show notes. By the way, The Lessons of History... Uh, by Will Durant and Ariel Durant. Uh, oh, uh, and uh, that audiobook was great too because in between the chapters, there's interviews with Will and Ariel, and they start arguing <laughs> uh, uh, about history, and it's 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 charming. Um, little side note there. Well, uh, this has been wonderful, Joe, and and I really appreciate your time today. Um, I also hope that I can stay in touch with you in the future. Uh, this is a really complex project that we're taking on and, um, I don't know where it's going to go or what shape it's going to take, but, uh, we might want to get your feedback and maybe, uh, your advisement on, on the project as it moves along without taking too much of your time. So I might reach out again in the future and see, uh, maybe we can do something like that. Tell me, what is the project? Yeah, so Type 1 Planet is a, we're attempting to create a theoretical model. So for right now, if you do the math on our current global civilization, just energy use 
as as a as one of those factors take put aside agriculture for example um the math on our civilization doesn't work for a, a 10,000 year timeline you know we, we maybe we can become more and more efficient of pulling fossil fuels out of the ground uh but the way that we're structured right now there it will be some sort of societal uh collapse and and the thing that we're working with here is 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 not knowing what would happen after a, a collapse like that how how deeply how much of a of a cost we would pay um for that and uh so what we're trying to do right now is using the technologies and tools that we have at our current disposal assuming you know without assuming the invention of fusion energy for example is it possible to create a theoretical model that even the math but everything else uh, would work um for a long-term existence and as we create that model, as we say, okay, well, we would need, uh, let's say, with current uh, population growth lines, we would need this amount of food, this amount of energy. Um, how is it that we could create that many calories? How is it that we can create that much energy? And um, and that's where we start to pull in uh, scientists, entrepreneurs, researchers, professors, authors who are doing this kind of work. Um, you know, we're talking to people who are trying to pull microplastics out of water. We're talking to people who are uh, creating urban um, uh, urban farming uh, technology where you know they're building acres and acres of farmland inside of storage containers that can go on top of parking garages. And uh, the, you know we take we build that model and then we start plugging these technologies and these ideas and these concepts in, see if we can fill the holes. And uh, what we do with that model is a good question. but uh, I think the proof of concept is something that we're working on first. So it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to maybe run something by you one day and say, oh, what's your instinct on this kind of model? <laughs> um, and I don't know what kind of form that would take. If it would be a book, it's definitely taking the form of a podcast right now and maybe um, documentaries. I don't know. We're, we're working on it. Very good. Sounds like very worthwhile project. Good luck with it. I appreciate you and I, I, I appreciate your time and your feedback and... Uh, Hope to be in contact with you again soon. This has been wonderful. Very good.